Hello, everybody, and welcome into this episode number 28 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question is, how did Jesus destroy death? We're also going to be talking about love at first sight. And have you ever been hit so hard by love at first sight that you just cried on the spot? Well, Jacob has. Welcome into episode 28. That means we are now four weeks into doing a daily Bible podcast. Thank you to those of you who have been here since the beginning. All those many days ago, well, way back in the day, welcome aboard to any newcomers. As a reminder, our goal is to be in God's Word daily and to encourage others to be in God's Word daily. I want to invite you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Every day I write an article for the site that goes along with the uh, podcast. It's almost a word-for-word transcript, so any of the scriptures we talk about will be referenced there, plus the quotes and all that kind of good stuff, and maybe some additional information and pictures and what have you. So far, just in... Just in January, the the word count on the BibleReadingPodcast.com blog is like 55,000. So you throw that into a book, you're talking about 170 pages approximately, give or take a few pages. And so I think there's a lot of good resources there. I would like to invite you to share the show on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or social media. Thank you and shout out to Ben Cogswell this week who... Uh, put out a tweet there that was very encouraging and I actually think reached a lot of people and uh, got some new subscribers. So welcome aboard. If you're Ben's friend, if you want to share the show, you can do that. That's a great way to encourage other people to join us in daily Bible reading. No need to go back and read yesterday's readings or even download yesterday's podcast unless the topic just kind of interests you and you've got time to. Uh, we're all about daily reading. You don't have to catch up. You can jump on the train today and join with us. Now, my son recently asked me what my favorite episodes were so far, and I put together uh, five, my I guess my top five favorite episodes of the first four weeks. And if you want to check those out, some of the questions there were either particularly interesting or maybe encouraging or what have you, uh, you just go to BibleReadingPodcast.com and those five will be there. Uh, one of the, one of them was just a couple of days ago. We did a pod on Mary of Bethany, how she exemplifies so well the first and greatest commandment. Another one that was a favorite was the Nephilim episode. That was number six. I think it's been the most downloaded episode so far. And, you know, the Nephilim, the giants on the earth, that's a fun topic to talk about. Another one was when we discussed, are Christians bound to follow the Old Testament and the New Testament? And then a couple more. Uh, last week's episode in the last days are the end times has a great, uh, at least great, it's not great, it's long. It's a long and fairly detailed article on BibleReadingPodcast.com all about the last days and what's important when we study eschatology. And finally, I kind of thought it was interesting to dig into the topic of judging. You know, everybody knows the Bible verse, judge not lest ye be judged, but sometimes the Bible tells us we are supposed to judge. So we really wrestled with that on one of the early episodes. I think it was episode number seven of whether or not we're supposed to judge. Now, today's episode is focused on what I believe is the central event of Christianity and our hope, which is the resurrection or the victory of Jesus over death. Now, interestingly, 
The Bible speaks of death as an enemy, and anybody who has ever lost a loved one can testify that death does come like an enemy and causes tremendous world-shattering heartache and pain. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26 says, Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. So when Jesus comes back, last days, the the last thing he's going to crush under his feet is death. And I can't wait. Three days after his grisly death on the cross, which we talked about in yesterday's episode on the crucifixion, Jesus walked out of the tomb alive again, having handled death, it's handed death its first permanent defeat. Often when I talk about the resurrection, I seek to give people reasons to believe that the resurrection of Jesus was a real historic event that actually happened. In fact, the second book I wrote, and probably my favorite of the books I've written, is called Easter Fact or Fiction, and it's got 20 of those reasons to believe in the resurrection. And if you want to find it, just go to Amazon and search Easter Fact or Fiction, or come to the website BibleReadingPodcast.com, and you can click on it, and it'll take you there. And I say that um, not so that you'll make me a multi-billionaire by buying my books, but because today we're not going to talk so much about apologetics. Today we're going to focus more on the hope of the resurrection, because that's an important thing. Yes, I believe it's a historical event. Yes, I believe there's more than 20 different valid rational reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead. And over the weeks of this podcast, you better believe we're going to cover those. But again, today we're talking about hope, the hope that comes from the resurrection. So let's get into Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So, departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples his the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, His disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. 
The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So even though all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, end with Jesus' resurrection and ascension, I would still probably say that the resurrection chapter of the Bible is 1 Corinthians 15, because it's very long and it's completely focused on the resurrection. And in that passage, Paul talks about the hope that comes from the event we just read about. And he says this in verse 32, If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then he said this, actually a few verses prior, he said this in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ or have died have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, says Paul, we should be pitied more than anyone. Now, in the first quote above, Paul talks about some of the harrowing, oh, let's call them adventures, he had sharing the gospel in and around Ephesus. And he's saying how worthless those brushes with death, those dangerous times in the wilderness, fending off wild animals, apparently, he's saying how worthless those times would have been if Paul and his team only had human hopes. If there was no resurrection, he's saying, Go live a life of partying and pleasure. Have a good time, man. Have a blast because you're just going to die suddenly one day. You might as well enjoy it while you can. In the second passage, Paul is saying that there's no hope for Christians. And not only that, Christianity is the most pitiful and ridiculous religion and philosophy in the world if the resurrection isn't real and factual. But... Spoiler alert. Well, actually, we already read it, so no spoilers. <laughs> it is real and factual. Jesus has overcome death, and therefore he will overcome death and earth, us. And here's the thing. A lot of people out there, um, atheists and, and, and people who don't follow Christianity, are atheists our enemies? Absolutely not. I've always said this. I've never followed through. I want to get a shirt as a pastor and wear it a lot that just says, I love atheists. Why? Well, because I think atheists think Christians don't like them, and probably a lot of Christians don't, which is beyond ridiculous, because they realize something that Paul says here. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, they think Christianity is the most pitiful thing in the world. And and it is without the resurrection. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we're wasting our time. And Paul said, yeah, just go party. Have a good time, man. Watch all the movies you can. Do whatever. Just have a blast because life is short. But, 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 big but, the biggest but, Jesus 
has overcome death, and the resurrection is real, and he is the king, and he is the judge. And since he's overcome death, and since he says he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, well, that's a game changer. We don't just live to have a, a, a an empty, shallow life of partying and pleasure. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, says Paul, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. So because of this, we have hope. And I want to close out with a meditation I wrote on hope uh, a short while ago. Um, and take a couple of minutes to read through, but I, I hope <laughs> that this gives you hope in the resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 31, 24 says, be strong and courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. Now, hope is one of my favorite things in the entire world, and I spend a lot of my time hoping for things. Often I hope for very rational things. I hope that my kids will be healthy this month. I hope that my wife and I will be good parents, good spouses, have good unity together, and be good friends. I hope that our monthly income will be enough to cover our monthly outflow. That You know, that's sort of normal stuff. Other times, you know, if I'm being honest... My hopes can be a little more, well, let's just be nice and say colorful, which is a polite way to say extremely unrealistic. When I was a teenager, I'm a bit of a daydreamer, not a bit of a daydreamer. I am an absolute daydreamer. I desperately hoped to be able to one day have adamantium claws and a healing factor so that I could be more like my childhood hero, Wolverine. I later hoped to become a professional baseball player who would... um oddly enough, be a power pitcher who struck out everybody, but also a good hitter. Somebody who would hit at least 300 with a few dozen homers to uh, to boot, plus, you know, maybe win 25, 26 games a year. Maybe even close out a few games and get a few saves. Yeah, so not realistic at all, is it? Neither of those hopes have ever been remotely fulfilled. Although I guess I've had a few scratches over the days that have healed up, but I don't think that makes me Wolverine, the X-Men who had the power of being uh, healed. Uh, But alas, those things aren't going to happen. And that's the thing about hope, isn't it? It's only as good and valuable as its object. Hoping that something will happen does not make it more likely to happen, does it? Because I'm telling you, if hope made something happen, I would have some kind of superpowers by now because I've hoped for that, you know, for a lot of my childhood. But that's just not how hope works. The amount of hope we have in something does not correlate with the likelihood of that thing happening. 99.999% of the people that have ever played the lottery will tell you that. Therefore, in order for hope to be a positive and valuable thing, the object of hope, the thing that is hoped for, must be solid and secure, or the only thing that will result from hope is disappointment, right? The Bible doesn't really talk about hope the way that most people do today. 
We might say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or we might say, I hope that Alabama wins the national championship this year, meaning we have a desire for something to happen that is uncertain. We use the word hope in a way that is synonymous with our desires. We might as well say, I want it to not rain tomorrow, or I want Alabama to win the national championship this year. That's how most English-speaking people use the word hope. But here's the thing. Biblical hope is not focused on something that is wished for. It's focused on something that's a certainty. As I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 19 and 32 says, if we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anybody. What Paul means by that passage in the one I, I quoted earlier, which clearly contrasts human hope and biblical hope, is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the source and object of biblical hope. If that hope is a false hope, you know, in other words, if Jesus didn't really genuinely, historically, and accurately rise from the dead, then Christians are the most pitiful fools and time wasters in the world. The focus of biblical hope is the resurrection of Jesus, and it is a sure hope and an anchor, according to Hebrews 6. six a certain and historical fact that is worth of people putting the entirety of their confidence in. The Bible urges Christians to put their hope in certain things like the resurrection and warns Christians against putting their hope in uncertain things like seemingly powerful armies or technology or wealth or human sources of power. Psalm 33:17 for instance says, "The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power." So this biblical hope is intensely practical and it informs everything about the Christian life. Consider these five Bible verses that are really focused on hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So biblical hope impacts the way we view death, the way we behave at funerals. Yes, Christians grieve in the face of death, but not as those who are of the world. Number two, biblical hope is transformative. It changes our very nature and makes us more like Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 through 4 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That kind of hope purifies us and makes us more Christ-like. Biblical hope, number three, results in powerful and practical confidence. Not self-confidence, but God-confidence. I'm not a big self-confidence guy, and probably the reason why is I've let myself down so many times. If I've got a lot of confidence in myself, it's not very well-placed confidence because I fail too much. The Bible talks about a different object of hope. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, having such a hope, as in hope in Jesus, we use great boldness. So yeah, the hope in Jesus gives us great boldness. Number four, biblical hope is a defining characteristic of the Christian life. It's absolutely essential. Those who do not possess a sure hope in the resurrection of Jesus are not actually Christians. Hebrews 3, 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if 
says the writer of Hebrews, we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. It is an essential ingredient of Christianity to be a believer in the hope that comes from the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, number five, biblical hope is protective and the Bible compares it to an armor. When our hope and focus is on the solid foundation of Jesus overcoming death, then we are protected from doubt and any other attacks from the enemy. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, since we belong to the day, we must be serious and put the armor of faith and love on our chests and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. So hope is a beautiful thing. It's a centerpiece, an essential component of Christianity. We are defined by hope and we should overflow with hope. Because of hope, we should be bold and confident witnesses to a world full of wishers and dreamers. They're looking for something to place their hope in, but so many things have disappointed and failed them. Biblical hope will not. No matter what you're facing now, no matter how much your life or family has been devastated by the effects of sickness, death, or the fall, no matter how hopeless you might feel, know that the fact is that Jesus is returning to redeem and rescue those who are his own. He is returning to make things right. He is returning to crush death, end sickness, and wipe away every tear, the last two chapters of Revelation tells us. He is coming. It is a certain guarantee. Rest in that. Hope in that. Rejoice in that. He will not let you down. Look to him and live forever in realized hope. Hosea 6.3 says, Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. Tim Keller says, history ends with the resurrection. Resurrection is complete restoration, but only after death and destruction. This avoids the unbalanced optimism of modernity, but also the hopelessness of dystopianism. On the final day of history, we know that our Redeemer Jesus, Jesus will stand upon the earth and that our new resurrected bodies, we will see God. In the words of the poet Seamus Haney, The longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So, my friends, I urge you, because of the resurrection, no matter how dark a day it is, be hopeful, because this might just be as bad as it gets in all of eternity for you, and you have everything wonderful to look forward to if you are in Christ, saved by Him, washed by His sacrifice and by His blood. You are adopted as an heir and prepared for eternal life because of his crucifixion and his resurrection. Rejoice in that. And if that's not who you are, if you are not in Christ, then I urge you, look to Jesus believing and be saved and follow him. Genesis 29 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well, but a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return to the, st- the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men at the well, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, grandson of Nahor? Jacob asked them. They answered, We know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. 
Yes, they said, and here is his daughter, Rachel, coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, Look, it's still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. But they replied, We can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter Rachel with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son. She ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, Yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a month, Laban said to him, Just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel. So he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban replied, Better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, it is not the custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working eh, yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, The Lord has heard that I am unloved and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a third son, and said, At last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. 
So, yeah, uh, what an incredible mess we have here in Genesis 29. Uh, Laban is uh, kind of a sly old dog, isn't he? Jacob is pretty forward and uh, kind of emotional. You know, uh, seeing Rachel once and going and kissing her and then starting crying. Uh, I mean, I guess she does feel really loved and that's great and all, but she can't help but feel terrible for poor Olea. I wonder how this is going to turn out. Well, we'll find out tomorrow. But for now, Esther chapter 5 verse 1. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand towards Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? the king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, Hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits, but when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai, yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him rank in rank over the other officials in the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had repaired. I'm invited again tomorrow to join with her and the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew seated at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows seventy-five feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. This advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Acts chapter 28, verse 1. Once safely ashore, we then learned that the island we'd crashed on was called Malta. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness. They lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man no doubt is a murderer, even though he has escaped the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. 
but he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him. They changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Publius's father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him and praying and laying his hands on him, he healed him. After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So they heaped many honors on us, and when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. After three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island with the twin gods at its figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. After one day, south wind sprang up, and the second day we came to Putielli. There we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them, and so we came to Rome. Now the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the Forum of Epius and the Three Taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. After they examined me, they wanted to release me since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and to speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Then they said to him, Well, we haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we do want to hear what your views are, since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. After arranging a day with him, many came to him in his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, Go to these people and say, You will always be listening, but never understanding. You will always be looking, but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. As always, I hope it was a deep encouragement to your soul and that it pointed your eyes heavenward. 
I'm impressed by Paul in this passage of Acts 28. He's kind of a king of chill guy. I mean, picture it. Bitten by a venomous viper on his hand, and he just shakes it off and keeps going on about his business. I mean, that's pretty darn impressive, if you ask me. Cool story. Well, tomorrow we get to summarize Acts 20 at the book of Acts, and we get to summarize the book of Matthew because we finished two books today. So tomorrow we're going to start two new books. It should be an exciting day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. God bless you and Godspeed.